Well, Habakkuk chapter number 1. Habakkuk 1. And uh, some have labeled this part of the Scriptures the clean pages of Scripture because of how white the pages are relative to the rest of the Scriptures. Uh, Habakkuk chapter number 1. We'll actually read the whole chapter and we'll read into chapter number 2. But don't, uh, don't think that this is going to be a super long message. Uh, I don't think I'll be any longer, if not much longer, than I normally am. Although, Brother Al and I would both note that I don't think I've ever heard a preacher say, I'm not going to be long, and then not be long. <laughs> but I won't be that long. Habakkuk 1, we'll begin reading verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save? Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are, the, there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold, ye among the heathen, in regard, and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and, terrible and dreadful. Their, judgments, uh, their judgment and their dignity, dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence, their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. They shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die." O Lord, Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, Thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest Thou upon them that dealt treacherously, and holdest Thy tongue, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? And makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with the angle, they catch them in their net, and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad." Therefore they sacrifice under their net and burn incense under their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we have to gather around your word. And Lord, thank you for the testimony that Brother Eric gave and the good meeting that they had up at New Man of Baptist Church. I pray now that you'd help us as we consider 
uh, the book of Habakkuk and the passage that we've read, that you'd speak to our hearts, uh, that you'd encourage us, that you'd challenge us from your word through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In case you're not familiar or very familiar with this portion of Scripture, Habakkuk is found among what we call the prophets. Some have divided even further the prophets in categories of major and minor prophets. Now the categories of major and prophets are not in relation to the relevance of their message to you and me, but rather in relation to the size of the particular prophet. The major prophets begin with Isaiah and go through Daniel. All of those are much larger in length than, uh, than, than the minor prophets, with the exception of Lamentations. Uh, and then the minor prophets begin with Hosea, and they go through the end of the Old Testament, ending with Malachi. And while they are called the minor prophets, they're also the neglected prophets. Uh, There is very little serious study that is done, especially among the lay persons of the church, that is done uh, of the minor prophets especially. If you don't believe me, I ask you, what is the content of the book of Joel? What is the message of Nahum? And also ask yourself, what is the primary content of the book of Exodus or the book of Philippians? And you'll find that you are definitely more familiar with the latter two than the former two. You're, much, you're likely to be much more familiar with other portions of Scripture than you are to be with the minor prophets. And that is to our shame. And if we approach the minor prophets with a lethargic apathy, a lethargic neglect of this section of Scripture, we miss much. Because this portion of Scripture, just like all others, is given for, uh, for it is profitable to us. Now the prophets, both major and minor, revolve around the captivity of Judah at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. There are what are called pre-exilic prophets. That are the prophets that ministered and preached before Judah went into the captivity by Babylon. There are the exilic prophets, those that ministered and preached during the captivity of Judah in the, in the Babylonian Empire. And then there are, you guessed it, the post-exilic prophets, those that ministered and encouraged the people after they returned from the captivity of the Babylonian Empire. The messages in the prophets are uh, are diverse in topics. Some warn of judgment, some promise hope, some call to repent, some encourage to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. And even the audiences of the prophets differ widely. Most of the prophets are ministering to the southern kingdom of Judah. Some, though, minister to the northern kingdom of Israel. Some even have a message to the oppressors of Israel and Judah. Nahum, uh, Jonah would be an, an, an example, a notable example, where Jonah uh, preaches to the Assyrian, to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Nahum is another example where promise or doom is promised to the Assyrian Empire. And it's the book of Habakkuk where the doom of the Babylonian Empire is promised. This is where we find the doom of the oppressors of the southern kingdom, uh, the southern kingdom promised by God to Habakkuk. But the book of Habakkuk is unique, not so much for the message of doom to the Babylonian Empire, but what makes it different is as we read verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. 
Now, if the book of Habakkuk was like most of the other prophets, we would expect what follows that verse to be a message from God to the people of God or to the Assyrian or Babylonian empire, to some other group group of people. But the book of Habakkuk is different from the other prophets in this. It is not a message to other people, but it is simply a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. The prophets deliver the message from God to the people. Habakkuk simply delivers a message and really a bunch of questions to God. And really in the whole book of Habakkuk, there is only one other person that is directly addressed in the book. And if you will just look at the last verse of the book, the very end, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. That is the only direct address of anyone outside of either Habakkuk or God in this entire uh, short book. So the primary message that we are to derive from this book is to be found in the conversation, the dialogue between God and Habakkuk. And it is going to be apparent from the outset why Habakkuk comes to God in the first place. He comes to God with a complaint, with a couple of questions, asking God why he is acting the way that he is acting. Now, let me establish from the outset that the questions that Habakkuk asks or the attitude with which Habakkuk approaches God is one of a faithful man. Habakkuk does not approach God as a doubting man, as an unfaithful man. For the longest time in my reading of this book, I always assumed that Habakkuk was an unfaithful man that developed in his journey of faith. I assumed that the questions that are asked here in the first four verses of, of chapter 1, and then later on at the last, latter part of chapter 1. And I, I assumed and imagined the tone with which Habakkuk asked these questions were with the tone of accusation, that he was accusing God or doubting the, uh, the plan and the actions of God. But I eventually came to understand that Habakkuk is not doubting God as much as he is simply trying to make sense of the world that is around him. And in fact, he comes to God not because he is doubting God, but because precisely because he believes in God. And he simply wants to make sense of the world around him. Now, we do not know anything about this man. Uh, all that we know about Habakkuk is what we find in these three chapters. And really, the only thing that we know about Habakkuk is found in verse 1. That is that he is a prophet. Now, to what extent, we really don't know. Is he a professional prophet? Is he in with the religious elites of the day? Uh, is he buddies with Jeremiah? We really do not know. Some say that his name means embracer of God, but some have cast doubt on that. We really don't even know what his, what his name means. We really don't know much about Habakkuk. All we know is that he had a conversation with, with God. Now, we can look at the book and we can put together pieces and gather that Habakkuk ministered in the latter days of Judah's kingdom. So in the last part of their kingdom, uh, Habakkuk reigned. And, and more than likely, we can't speak with certainty, but more than likely Habakkuk is having this conversation with God during the reign of a man by the name of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the third to last king in, uh, in Judah's reign, although during his reign, the Babylonian Empire came in and invaded Jerusalem and took many uh, captive. And so, effectively, Jehoiakim is one of the last kings and uh, really the last king of the, disru- of the undisrupted 
uh, or the united, I shouldn't say united, but the kingdom of Judah before it was taken uh, to Babylon, Babylon in captivity. And it's very likely, again, that during Jehoiakim's reign is when Habakkuk uh, ministered and had this conversation with God. Now Jehoiakim, I don't know if I said this already, was one of the most wicked kings in Judah's history. Some would say he was the second most wicked king in Judah's history. He silenced and killed prophets. Uh, Jehoiakim murdered innocent lives. He oppressed the poor. He burned copies of the Word of God and he generally ruled ruthlessly. And what makes Jehoiakim's reign particularly bad is that his father was Josiah. Josiah was the most godly king in Judah's reign. Early on in Josiah's reign, he destroyed the altars of Baal. Uh, He ground to dust the altars of Baal, and then he unceremoniously scattered those ashes across the graves of those that worshipped Baal. He was a great guy. Josiah repaired the temple of God. He removed the idols of Asherah from the temple. He tore down the house of the Sodomites. He destroyed the altars of the false gods that his grandfather had erected Manasseh, uh, who was the most wicked king in Judah's history. And on the one hand, Habakkuk remembers the godly reign of Josiah. And on the other hand, he looks out the window and he sees the wicked reign of Jehoiakim. So when Habakkuk issues the complaints that we are about to consider to God, it is most likely that Habakkuk is doing so because he enjoyed probably the entire 31-year reign of Josiah. If he didn't enjoy most all of it, he certainly enjoyed most of it. And here he is in the midst of the 11-year wicked reign of Jehoiakim. And all the good that Josiah did for those 31 years, Jehoiakim is undoing and reversing. And this is the context of the complaint of Habakkuk. And we see the complaints found in verses 2 through 4. And I just want you to note for now the nature of these complaints. Verse 2, O Lord, how long? And then in verse 3, why? And I think when we consider that, we can see why the book of Habakkuk is relevant to you and, to you and me tonight. Because isn't this the nature of the questions that we so oftentimes come to God with? Lord, how long? Lord, why? Why? And I think there's a tendency among us to think that the faithful never ask questions. That the faithful have such a resolve and such a trust in God that they simply never have any questions to ask God. They never have any concerns or doubts to bring before God. And that is simply not the case. Those that have faith very oftentimes come to God with questions and very oftentimes leave that dialogue with God with with even more questions and more unresolved uh, questions. And just because your heart cries out to God, why, does not mean that you are an unfaithful Christian. Now that also does not mean that all questions come from a faithful heart. That is obviously not true. So how do we discern? the difference between questions that come from the faithful heart and those that come from the unfaithful heart. And I think Habakkuk Habakkuk gives us a little bit of insight into the difference between these two, or at least in identifying the questions that come from a faithful uh, faithful man. And what we see is there's a difference between a groan and a grumble. A difference between a groan and a grumble. 
The cry of faith is one of groaning, while the cry of unfaithfulness is one of grumbling. Behind the cry of the grumbler, uh, the grumbler simply seeks a more comfortable, pleasurable life. But behind the cry of the groaner, the groaner seeks to persevere in the circumstances that God has placed him or her in. The cry of the grumbler is one that wishes to have God's will bent to my will, while the cry of the groaner is one which wishes to have my will submitted to the will of God. And there is a world of difference between the two questions, the two natures of these questions. One is of self-pity, one is of a desire to serve and understand the Lord better. And we must not grumble, but we can groan. And in fact, in Romans 8, we find that not only do we groan, but the Spirit of God groans on our behalf. Now, the manner of Habakkuk's groans, or the manner of his prayers, his concerns, his questions, are not apparent apparent to us immediately, but I think they become more apparent as we move on. Look with me more specifically at verses 2 and 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Now there are two uh, components to the burden of Habakkuk that we read about there. First of all, he despises the corruption that he sees in his world. And second of all, he wonders aloud why God is silent about that corruption. No doubt Habakkuk remembers the glorious days of Josiah's reign. He remembers when the presence of the Lord was pervasive in the land. I'm sure Habakkuk remembers the time when the law of Moses or the the book of the law was recovered in Josiah's reign and it was read amongst the people and it was obeyed. I'm sure Habakkuk remembered the time that the celebration of the Passover was reinstituted by Josiah after not not, not having been celebrated for many, many, many years. The work of the Lord, the moving of the Lord, the glory of the Lord was apparently manifest in the reign of King Josiah. But as Habakkuk looks out the window in his current situation, he sees a totally different situation. He sees a land that is now filled with corruption. He sees a king that is silencing and killing the prophets, even silencing Jeremiah the prophet. Uh, He sees Jehoiakim who is enslaved and stolen from his own people to build a luxurious and comfortable palace. He sees Jehoiakim who had brought in the king or the, 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 the idols from Egypt, Egypt, where his own father Josiah was, was killed. And in fact, just listen to what Jeremiah has to say about Jehoiakim. Because it can be difficult to understand the wickedness of a man like Jehoiakim. But when you read the words of Jeremiah, it, it adds uh, some weight. To it. And so here's what Jeremiah had to say about Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 22. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, All my brother, all sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, All Lord or all his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry, and lift up thy voice in Bashan, and cry from the passages. For all thy lovers are destroyed. And then at the end of the chapter, Jeremiah says, Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. 
Jehoiakim was such a wicked and evil man that God would not allow any of his children or any of his descendants to sit upon the throne of David any longer. And Habakkuk looks at his current situation and he considers the past with King Josiah and he wonders aloud before God, how long can you allow this corruption to go on? Why are you letting the sin in this society to go on and do nothing? And do we not find ourselves in Habakkuk's seat on occasion? We look around and say, Lord, how long? Lord, can you really sit by while the iniquity of our world increases more and more by the minute? Lord, can you sit, sit by while the elites of our society oppress the downtrodden and the poor? Lord, can you sit by while people, while people use your name as a cover to do evil? Lord, why are you doing nothing when evil seems to triumph over good? And sometimes the questions get even more personal than that. Lord, how could you let this happen to me when all I've been doing is trying to faithfully serve you? Lord, how can this sickness ravage my body when I have been trying to be faithful to you? And while we sometimes feel bad about asking these questions, take note that the reason sometimes these questions arise in our hearts is because we know God can do something. We know He is able to do something about the corruption that is in our world. We know He is able, if He so pleases, to do something about the sickness that is in our body or the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And we fundamentally know that God is sovereign. We know that He controls the material world of the universe. We know He causes the sun to rise and the wind to blow and the waters to flow. We know He has control over the universe. And sometimes we wonder why He doesn't use those resources a little differently. And we know that God controls the temporal world of history. We know that He rises and, and, and He causes people to rise and nations to fall at His own bidding. He caused Pharaoh to rise so that he might display the glory of God to his chosen people of Israel. He raised John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord. He raised the Apostle Paul to be the Gentile, the Apostle to the Gentiles. And it is because, it is precisely because we know and we believe in the sovereignty of God and that He is in control of all things. He is not in control of some things, He is in control of all things. All things do His bidding. And we know He is sovereign. And it is this precise reason why we come to God sometimes with our questions. I oftentimes wonder when I see someone who blasphemes the name of God, why He doesn't just strike them down with lightning and give us a wonderful display of the, the terrible glory of God. In some sense, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be, it would be awesome, truly awesome to see. And, and here's the thing. I know God can do it. He could absolutely do that if He wanted to. But yet, as we observe the, Lord, the world today, they call evil good and good evil. And the Lord is silent. Seemingly silent. The world blasphemes God and God is silent. The world oppresses the innocent and God is silent. It increases in wickedness and God is silent. Why? Why? Well, in verses 5 to 11 in Habakkuk 1, the Lord responds to Habakkuk. Notice with me verse 5. 
Behold, ye among the heathen, speaking to Habakkuk, in regard, wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. Now let's stop our reading right there. If, if that's all we, we had in the book of Habakkuk, some of us would shout the victory. You know, because some of us are optimistic in spirit, me being one of those people. And I would read that. Don't laugh at that, Brother Jeremy. I would read that verse and think, boy, the Lord is about to do something great. He is about to raise up another Josiah. He is about to establish a revival in the land of Judah. But that is not what the Lord is talking about. And in fact, the Lord tells Habakkuk precisely the work that he is about to do in verse 6. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Now the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. We're very familiar with the Babylonians from the book of Daniel and other passages of Scripture. But I want you to notice, first of all, that, that while it seemed God was slack concerning the sin of Judah, while it seemed He was asleep while Judah was committing uh, sins and oppressing the poor, He was not asleep. That He was very much aware of what was going on in Judah. And while Habakkuk looked out his window and he saw no evidence of the hand of God at work, he just needed to look a little farther. Because about 500 miles to the east, God was raising up the instruments of His chastisement upon His people. And in verses 7 to 10, God describes these instruments of His chastisement. Verse 7, they are terrible and dreadful. Verse 9, they shall come all with violence, or come all for violence. Verse 11, Then shall his mind change, he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Little g, that is not Jehovah God, that is a false God, that is no God that he is imputing his power unto. They were bloodthirsty savages. They had no no mercy, they had no compassion. History tells us that the Babylonians, when they would conquer a city, they would pile up the decapacitated heads of their victims into a pyramid-like shape. They would burn alive the children of their victims. They impaled men. And so Habakkuk asked God, what is he going to do? Or why is he sitting by while the sin of Judah continues to pile up and the iniquity of Judah and the iniquity of Jehoiakim continues to rise? And God answers, I'm doing something. I'm raising the instruments of my chastisement. But the answer of God does not satisfy Habakkuk. In fact, the answer of God leads Habakkuk to another series of questions, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, ending in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, in, again, in verse 12, Habakkuk begins his response. It reminds me a little bit of the song that uh, one of our trios sings, A Greater Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the song, a greater yes in the premise of the song, which is a good one, I believe, that, uh, that God sometimes says no in the present to give way to a greater yes in the future. And Habakkuk some, seems to teach us that sometimes God says yes, but we would actually rather He say no. Because when Habakkuk hears the chastising hand, the instruments of God's wrath upon Judah... He kind of backs up a little bit. It seems like God has chosen a more severe form of punishment than the crime is worthy of. And you see in verse number 12, 
The beginning of Habakkuk's response, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One, we shall not die. And there are two concerns in the mind of Habakkuk in this, in this second complaint. And first is made obvious there uh, with what we just read, and that is the promises of God to the nation of Israel. If you look back at verse 6, you see what might have pr- provoked this response. When the Lord says, For lo, lo, I raise up the Chaldean, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. And I'm sure as Habakkuk heard that, alarm bells went off in his head and said, uh, Lord, this is not their land. This is land that you unconditionally promised to your people. Now, you and I are sitting here in the hindsight of, hindsight of history. We know what's going to happen. They're going to go into Babylonian captivity, and then after a period of time, they're going to come back and they're going to rebuild the temple, and all is going to be well. But Habakkuk doesn't know that. And in fact, Habakkuk looks north and he sees what used to be the ten tribes of Israel. And they are seemingly gone. And they have been whisked away into, into the Assyrian Empire. And, and really, the, the northern tribes of Israel have yet, even today, to fully recover from the Assyrian uh, Empire's destruction of Israel. And he looks to the north and then he hears that God has prepared something very similar to his own people in the southern tribes of Judah. And he thinks, how is this possible? How can God possibly keep his promises to the nation of Israel and yet at the same time bring the Chaldeans into this land to possess the land that God has given to the nation of Israel? The second thing that is in that is in Habakkuk's mind is found in verse number 13 where Habakkuk says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Do you see what Habakkuk is saying? He is saying out of a refined sense of justice, if you will, that Lord, you have chosen a people to destroy Judah who are more wicked than Judah. How does that make sense? And of course, I think we could contest that. Because as the Lord sees it, one's unrighteousness has a lot to do with how much truth they have received. And Judah had received a whole lot of truth. And they had rejected that truth. Certainly, we're not here to, to accuse God of being unjust. And neither is Habakkuk. Habakkuk is not accusing God of injustice. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 2. Look at how Habakkuk says this. He says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon my tower, set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am approved. See, Habakkuk knows he doesn't have the answers, but he knows there are answers. He knows that the Lord is not going to unjustly deal with His people. He knows, in fact, that the Lord is not going to utterly destroy Israel, that He is going to keep His promises to the nation of Israel. He just doesn't know how the Lord is going to do it. And so in verse 1, he says, Here are my complaints. I am awaiting the answer of the Lord. I know there is an answer. I know there is a suitable answer from the Lord, and now I am simply awaiting it. And what Habakkuk is trying to do here is he is trying to make sense of an unstable world in light of an unchanging God. 
And that is very different from how the unfaithful question God. The unfaithful try to make sense of an unchanging God in light of an unstable world. And there's a huge difference between the two. The, the faithful say, I know God is faithful. Therefore, though my circumstances fail me, I can still trust in God. The unfaithful say, my circumstances have failed me, therefore how can God be faithful? Well, do you see the difference between the two? Job said, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. That's the attitude of the faithful. But the attitude of the faithful is that my circumstances have failed me. How can God cause this to happen? How can a faithful God allow this to happen? And Habakkuk cannot reassure himself of the circumstances in his life. The only thing he can really assure himself is of the character of an unchanging God. And that is exactly what he does. You notice in verse 12 of chapter 1, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, mine Holy One? He reminds himself first of the eternality of God. In verse 12 he says again, the middle part of the verse, the end part of the verse, Almighty God. He reminds himself of the power of God, the Almighty God. In verse 13, and he alludes to it in verse 12 as well, verse 13, Thou art of purer eyes than behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. He reminds himself of the holiness of God. That God is not the author of evil and He cannot even look upon evil. He cannot look upon evil with approval. And Habakkuk may know nothing else. He may not understand what is happening in his world, but this he knows, that God is faithful, that God is holy, and that God is good. And as we look at the world around us, we may not be able to understand everything that we see, but this we can know. Our God is faithful, and He is holy, and He is good. You might be trying to make sense of the wayward child in your life. You might be trying to make sense of the lost loved one that is hardened to the gospel. You might be trying to make sense of that barren womb. You might be trying to make sense of that sickness-ravaged body. Or you might be trying to look at the leadership of the world that you see, and you see the godless, pagan leadership that has so oppressed our society. And you can't assure yourself of anything in this world. There's no certainty in this world. It is a constantly changing world. But you can reassure yourself of God. And you can find hope and faith or confidence in a changeless, holy, faithful, good God. And even when we are perplexed, when we are confused, we can trust in God. Now let me end with this as I close. We see in chapter 2, beginning in verse number 2, the Lord responds to Habakkuk again. And we're not really going to concern ourselves with the entire response, but I just want us to look at verse 4 to sum this up. Verse 4, the end of the verse, the Lord says, the just shall live by his faith. Now the phrase there is actually quoted three times in the New Testament, once in Romans, once in Galatians, and once in Hebrews. And you can study it out on your own, but it seems like in, in the respective mentions or quotations in the New Testament, there's an emphasis on a different part of the phrase. Romans, it seems to emphasize the just. Galatians, it seems to emphasize shall live. Uh, Hebrews seems to emphasize by faith. The just shall live 
by faith. It is because this, this phrase is quoted in the New Testament three times and in three critical places that the book of Habakkuk is actually called the grandfather of the Reformation. As you may know, Martin Luther latched on to the phrase, the just shall live by faith, particularly found in the book of Romans, and really was convicted of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But as we consider it in the book of Habakkuk, the message is very clear. Faith is not only a means of justification for the faithful, but faith is a, it is a way of life for the faithful. It is how we travel this world and remain true to the Lord. It is how we lead our families. It is how we make sense of our circumstances in the world around us. It is how we shine our light in the dark world around us. And the message of Habakkuk is simply, very simply, but also profoundly this. Live by faith. Trust God. You can't trust in anything else, but you can trust in a changeless God. Let's pray.